love small businesses and um, working on Wall Street taught me that in a very mildly way. Um, and I just, I love, I love watching someone reach their goals. So that's like really what gets me going is like, okay, like what are your goals? Let's figure it out. And then finding ways to help them do it. So that is my passion. And um, so anyway, that being said, I'm gonna start talking about taxes. So a lot of people, we have a lot of real estate in our office. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm from Chapin and I know a lot of people in Chapin. I went to, been in Chapin since 1983. So I was a young buck young girl, whatever. Whenever we moved here, my parents um, are from Newberry and Spartanburg, so I have a lot of family in the area. And um, so when I started my business, I was actually told by a, another person in this town, he said, there's no way CPA firm will ever survive in Chapin. And I was like, well, we're going to find out. Yeah. Here we go. Um, and, and I have been very blessed. So um, with that being said, a, lot, a large portion of my business is real estate, and I have a ton of real estate agents and a ton of real estate investors, and we work with um, you know a lot of variety of stuff. So with that being said, I'm going to talk to you first about depreciation. So who knows anything about depreciation? Okay, you know. All right, everyone, you love depreciation when you are owning the business. And unless you have actually depreciated a property and then sold it, you do not know that you hate depreciation when you sell the property or the business, right? So um, when you talk about depreciation, if you're going to buy and hold, right? You're going to do that, and if it's a residential rental, it's 27.5 years. If it's a commercial, it's 39 years. Um, there's this thing called a cost segmentation analysis. I'm sure some of you have heard of that. I don't know if you have or haven't. But if you're going to own a commercial property, I would highly recommend doing a cost segmentation analysis. There are definitely pros and cons to that. But depreciation is um, non-cash, so it feels really, really nice in the you know when you're doing a tax return. You're like, oh, look at that. I'm getting this big deduction, and it feels so good. And you do that for, I don't know, let's say you buy and hold for, I'm using you as an example because you were talking about buy and hold. So I do it for 10 years, I've depreciated this property, and then I think a lot of our clients, when they first sell their first property, they think they still have a basis of $300,000, which is what they bought it for. However, when you depreciate a property over 27.5 years, that is not the case. So instead of it being, and I don't have a calculator with me, but let's you know spitball it, instead of having uh, a $300,000 basis, I have more like, I don't know, 220, yeah, I was gonna say like, I'll use 70,000, that's the number I was gonna use, so yeah, 220. So I'm selling for 220. So when my basis is 220, and then I go sell, and I'm selling for 350, I've got a lot larger gain than I think I have, okay? So that's really, really critical for those of you who are gonna hold for any period of time. Because depreciation rate capture is a bitch, okay? And everybody who has experienced it will absolutely shake their head on that. So we have a lot of clients who buy and hold, and now we have employed the uh, 1031 exchange over and over and over again for those people. And I actually have a client right now who has a basis based on all the 1031s we've done deferred gains. Um, I mean, the basis is so small. It's like the next time they sell, there's nothing left. So um, they're gonna have to recognize a pretty good, big gain here pretty soon. So um, with that being said, Depreciation is beautiful and nice. Cost, cost segmentation analysis, um, does anybody know what a cost segmentation analysis is? Has anybody ever done one? No, has anybody ever heard of it other than that? Okay, you've heard of it, okay. So cost segmentation analysis basically takes the property and it splits it up into um, depreciable assets that are not just the building. So I'm gonna use a commercial building because that's a little bit easier. So I'm gonna buy this building 
and it's a commercial building, it's five hundred thousand dollars, and then they're going to break that building up into audiovisual, plumbing, electrical, sidewalks, and you know whatever. And I'm going to depreciate all of those on an expedited schedule. So seven years, 15 years, that type of thing, instead of 39 years, right? So you can see if I'm looking for deductions, I'm definitely wanting to do that, right? Um, especially if I think I'm gonna make good money on it. So what happens though is that when you do that cost segmentation analysis and you have all this personal property, audiovisual, plumbing, electrical, that we are arguing is public pro I mean, personal property, goes on a business personal property tax return. How many of you have filed those before? Business personal property tax returns are also bitches. Um, <laughs> it's my least favorite tax that South Carolina um, charges. And if you have a vacation rental, by the way, all of you have vacation rentals, you are supposed to be filing one of those for Lexington County or whatever county you're in. Most people don't do that, but if you get caught, it's not a happy day. So it's very, Horry County is the best county that I know of who, they do an outstanding job. They know when there's a rental and they are all over it. Lexington County, not so much. Um, because we don't have a hospitality tax in Lexington County, but that's one of the reasons Horry County is so good. But anyway, um, those assets and the cost of contention analysis become personal property. So they do go on a personal property tax return, so that's a negative, but still, you can still expedite that depreciation instead of 39 years. So just something to think about cost of segmentation if you're gonna be doing apartments, if you're gonna be doing vacation rentals, if you're gonna be doing commercial properties. I don't necessarily have many guys who do, or girls, girls or guys, who do it on um, residential rentals. So that's the cost of segmentation. I have a quick question about yeah. that. Does it have to be done the first year that you own it? It has to be done by the time that you file the tax return for the first year that you own it. Okay. So for example, if I buy the house and it's not in service, like I'm renovating it, okay. I don't have to make that decision. But the day I place it in service and I file a tax return for that year, so let's say I place it in service on January 1st of 2024 and I file my tax return in April of 2025, I have to make that decision by April of 2025. Okay. Or if I extend October of 2025. Okay. Um, but great question. So, okay, so depreciation is beautiful, and then it's not. And then cost segmentation analysis is beautiful, and it can hurt, depending on your personal property tax situation. Um, a lot of you kept saying that you were um, doing this, I think some of you said it full-time, some of you said you did it part-time, so um, passive activity losses, how many people have ever heard of those? Yeah, so passive activity losses is one thing that gets a lot of people and they don't understand them. So I'm gonna kind of go over it. By the way, I'm hitting all these topics and if you want me to dig into any one of them like a little deeper, I just need you to say, hey, can you dig into that? Um, because I don't want to bore you either. Um, so um, passive activity losses basically says that I am not materially participating, this is not my main business, and by default, real estate is passive, okay? Like in the Internal Revenue Code, passive activity, real estate's included in that, okay? So if I make more than, if I'm married, who's here is not married, how about that? Not married, okay. So I will say a few things about not married then. Okay, so if I'm not married, my threshold starts at 75,000. If I'm married, it starts at 125,000. But if I have passive activity losses, um, and I have a W-2 job, and then I have a rental property, which again, by default is in passive activity, then, at, at, and I'm gonna use my number for the married. So at 125,000, I start phasing out being able to deduct that passive activity loss, okay? And at 150,000, I don't get any deduction for that, that year, all right? 
So when people walk in to my office, which we have a lot of people who walk in and they make $300,000, $400,000 on W-2, and then they have a couple of rental properties, and they say, oh, I had a huge loss on my rental property this year, and I'm going to get to take it. And then I say, oh, are you materially participating in your rental property? And they're like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and then I ask a few more questions, and it turns out that this is not a materially material participation. They don't even spend 250 hours a year, much less 750 hours a year, and they don't spend more than 50% of their time doing this business, okay? So all that means that they're passive. So, and then I'm like, oh, guess what? You don't get any of it. And that is like painful, right? It's for a lot of people, they want that loss. So it depends on your income, but if you're 150 or above. So then those passive activity losses, they get suspended, okay? So they don't get to use them, but they, they roll forward with you. Yes? But if you're like, us two, and your your main job is property management. Yep. And do, do you then get to uh, take the, take that big loss? It depends. On your personal rentals. It depends. You're getting there. Aren't you? I'm gonna get there. Yeah. I'm going. I'm going to the real estate. I'm going to the real estate professional thing. We're gonna hit that. Okay. So what happens is you it gets suspended. You don't get the loss. We had a guy. Um, who is a real estate professional who did not get to take his losses. Uh, in 2023, he sold the house and he has suspended losses. About 13,000 a year was his average suspended loss and he had it suspended for like 10 years. So he, he was calling me saying, I'm gonna get killed. I'm gonna get killed because he understands appreciation. I'm gonna get killed. And I said, I don't think you're gonna get killed. And he was like, okay, I love you. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, love me, okay, great, but no. Uh, you have suspended losses of like 130,000. He was like, oh my gosh, I did not even realize that. And so we had talked about it, but he didn't, he didn't understand what it meant. So when he sold that property, all those suspended losses become an ordinary loss in the year of disposition, okay? So when, they, when people say, oh, I hate passive activity losses, it's kind of like the opposite of depreciation. I hate passive activity losses in the year that I have the losses and I can't take it, but in the year I sell, I'm like, oh, I love them. Thank you. Right? Does that make sense? Yes. You can't take them until you sell the house. You can't take them until you sell the property. Oh. Passive losses are suspended per activity until you really until you sell that property, if, if or that's... unless you have other passive income. In that same definition, not dividends and interest, but like other passive activity income. So if you have royalty income, or if you have an investment in a partnership that's passive, then you can take that take that loss against that. So that's above the threshold. The loss is above the threshold of 100. Yeah, if your loss is above the threshold of 150, I mean, if your income's above 150 without the loss, okay, without the loss, then you have your loss is suspended. But then if you have a passive activity that's income and you're still above the 150, and, that, and I'm gonna use a partnership as an example because there's lots of people invest in partnerships and they have passive loss, I mean, passive income, then they, you do get to take that passive loss in that same year. So it, but I'm gonna to get to you in a minute because y'all do a full time. So I'm gonna to get to y'all. Okay, so that gets suspended, right? But again, when I sell it, I'm like, yes, this is really beautiful. I'm kind of happy now because now I don't spend all my money on my taxes when I sell my property, right? Because I still have depreciation that I have to recapture again, of course, okay? So now let's say that I'm not a W-2 person and I do spend more than 50% of my time doing real estate and I am, a licensed broker, or I am a licensed real estate um, agent, or some other way that I can say that I am a real estate professional, okay? And there's lots of definitions that qualify as a real estate professional. And I, again, more than 50% of my time I spend in real estate. That is very critical for where I'm going. 
So if you have a job and it's a W-2 job and you work that 2,080 hours a year, the IRS does not believe you if you then go say you're a real estate professional on what I'm about to talk about, okay? And there are so many court cases. Every year, there's about three court cases that support my position. So when I say that, I'm not saying this like, oh, willy-nilly, like, oh. Um, so with that being said, I have more than 50% of my time and I materially participate in this activity, which means no one spends more than 100, I spend at least 100 hours and no one spends more time than me. Okay, that's like when the, that's, there's seven different tests of material participation and that's the easiest one to meet, okay? So I spend 100 hours at least on this activity and no one else does more than me, okay? In your business. Yes, yes. In yeah, okay. Yeah, in my business. Right. Like, what about the floor? Yeah, in my business. Right, right, right. In my business. Not including your contract or okay, so <laughs> okay. Then what happens is, and I'm going to talk about your one Airbnb. Okay, you have one rental Airbnb rental. Okay. And then if I want to get more than active, I'm, I'm active participation at that point, right? But there's this law that they passed a while back called the Real Estate, Real Estate Professional Designation. Have you ever heard of that? No. It's okay. Most people have it. So the Real Estate Professional Designation basically says, and the IRS's position is, you spend more than 50% of your time and you materially participate. And if you want to take it, which means you don't have any passive activity loss limitations, you get to take all the losses in the year that you have the losses, okay? But... The test is 750 hours per activity documented. 750 hours. How many hours do you have in a year? So if you work 40 hours a week, that's 2,080 hours, right? So, so when you ask, can I take my, my uh, losses, right? I'm, I'm a real estate professional. Can I take these losses? Well, if you spend 750 hours per property, then sure. Per property. Per property. If they're not in an entity, the entity holds them, like a partnership or an S corporation holds them. If they're not in an entity. If you hold them individually on your Schedule E. Oh, yeah, why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people do, so I'm, giving, I'm trying to cover it all. And as a professional? <laughs> so if you have each property on your Schedule E and they're, they're separate properties, then it's 750 per property. If you make, it, if you make an election and you say, hey, I'm going to group these together, and I'm going to treat them all as, as one property, then you can do 750 for the group. But that also has pros and cons to it. And that gets really technical, so I'm not going to go into it. But just know that, that opportunity is out there if you make that election, but make sure you understand that election when you make it. And that, get, again, gets super technical. Um, when you say group them together like a holding company? No, you you're going to be on your Schedule E. On your, so like you have them on your schedule, right? Like here's A, B, C, D, right? I've got my, you know, 501 Sumter, 301 Ott, 506, you know, whatever, right? I've got my four different rental properties. Well, I can say that as a group, I spend 700, I'm, I'm more than 50%, right? No one spends more time than me. And altogether, I spend at least 750 hours. So then I'm a real estate professional. Check the box, real estate. I'm not active, I'm a real estate professional. Right? There's four boxes to check. The last one's real estate professional. Real estate professional, and I am going to be taking this losses this year. So I can elect to group them for my 750 hours on that schedule E. Okay? So, but again, that has pros and cons, just like cost implementation. Okay? 
just like depreciation. Is just that like, like buying several properties under one LLC? Okay, I'm gonna get to that in a minute. Okay, sorry. I'm going there. I'm going. Yeah, I, think, I think right now you're basically just talking about like if you're as an individual. Yeah, I'm doing individual yeah, investors right now. Like if like you own your properties as an individual. Yeah. If you have it under your personal name. Right. Yeah, and there's a lot of people who do that. So I'm not sure if anybody of you do, and I'm not saying you do or don't, but a lot of people do. So, all right, now. Let's sit. Yep. Can just one last thing? Uh huh. When you said put them in a group, you weren't talking about putting them in the LLC? Mm -hmm. I'm saying, what you mean? I'm saying I make an election on my personal tax return. I make an election to group them as one kind of property. I'm saying that they're all a group and I treat them more like a business. So I can do seven hundred. No, it doesn't. You can do it as an individual. I own them as Aaron Long Bergeson and I own seven different properties and all together I spent 750 hours on those seven properties. So now I can take those losses. Okay? Yeah. Okay, now we're gonna talk about entities. There we go. All right. You're in the right room. There we go. All right, now. Um, a lot of people, so we're gonna talk about entities. Um, so a lot of people think, oh, I got an LLC, and I'm this, and I'm that. And you say, okay, so who's your partner? Oh no, I just own it. Well, guess what? For the IRS, that means you don't have anything. If you're an LLC owner, and you're a single member LLC owner, unless you make an S election, or unless you make a C corp election, you are nothing to the IRS, okay? It's called a disregarded entity. If you're a single member LLC without an election, you are a disregarded entity, which means the IRS says, I don't know who you are. I don't care who you are. And that means that if you have a small business, you're gonna file on the Schedule C on your individual income tax return. And if you are a, a rental, it's a Schedule E, okay? So it's very important that you understand that when you, you get an LLC, having an LLC doesn't mean anything to the IRS unless you have more than one partner or unless you make an election, okay? So, yep. Could that partner be your wife or no? Yes. Okay. Yes, you can do that. So more than one. More than one wife? <laughs> you said more than one More than one, one owner. owner. Oh, okay. more than one you have to have more than one owner. Okay. So two, two partner. partner. I, you have to have a partner. I was like, wait, I thought a partnership works, and she said more than one partner. That's a three. No, like more than one, like more than one owner is what I meant. Yeah. So more than one owner. So you have to have two, and by default, or LLC, IRS says LLCs again are disregarded. But if I'm a multi-member LLC, more than one, I am now a partnership by default. Okay. This um. These are very, I'm gonna call these basic, but I will tell you that they're misunderstood by like 90% of the population, okay? So this is super basic, but also totally, totally not understood. So now I have a partnership with my wife, okay? I have an LLC, multi-member, I'm now a partnership with my wife. I've not made an election. So now I'm gonna be a partnership. And now we have to determine, is my wife active? Am I active? Am I non-passive? Is my wife non-passive? Okay? Because then we start talking about passive activity losses. We have a lot of clients who the husband is non-passive. He spends a material amount of time, material participation in this company, more than 100 hours and no one else spends more than him, okay? But his wife can't also spend 100 hours because then that means that, well, there's only one person that can do that, right? More than 100 hours or 750 hours? Ah, this is for entities. It's 100 hours for entities. Okay. The 750 is real estate professional designation on the Schedule E when you own it in a single member LLC or you own it individually. This gets really fun. There's lots of... Got it. Okay, so... 
So if I'm in an LLC and I own it with my husband and my husband is a real estate professional and he spends more than 50% of his time doing real estate and he spends more than 100 hours on our LLC and I'm a CPA, by the way, I'm giving you a real life scenario right now. My husband is a real estate professional and he does have a W-2 job and I am not materially participating. I sit in my little um, craftsman style office over there and I crunch numbers. That's what I do all day, every day, literally. So, um, <laughs> so with that being said, when we do our tax return, I'm passive, okay? So, and my husband is non-passive. So do I always wanna be 50-50? No. No. Sometimes I wanna be 95-5 or I wanna be 99-1. I only have to have 0.1% to be a partnership. I can have 99.9 and 0.1 and still be a partnership. And then 99.9% .9 of my loss is non-passive, which means I have no limitations, right? But I, as the passive partner at 0.1%, well, mine gets held up. Passive activity loss, you know, I get held up for until I dispose of the partnership or until I have passive income. Okay, does that make sense? Yes. Okay, so now let's say that neither one of you spend 100 hours. We can't make the argument that you spend more than 50 you do own this entity together. We can't make the argument that you spend more than 50% of your time doing real estate, and we can't make the argument whatever, whatever, right? All that. Well, it's just passive. It just ends up being passive income to you, which I'm going to go over in a little while. Could be good, could be bad. Passive is not always great. A lot of people today think, oh, I get passive, I get passive, I get passive. Well, guess what? There's extra taxes that you're going to pay if you're all passive. If you make more than 200000 if you're single, 250 if you're married, um, filing jointly. So, Passive is good, sometimes. Um, everything in taxes, by the way, is sometimes. <laughs> if anybody ever tells you this is absolutely always the best way, yeah. they're lying. And I, I'll say that, I mean, I tell people, well, generally it's this, but I don't really know because I don't know your situation, right. right? Like there is like an 80-20 rule, or maybe a 90-10 rule, but there's not a 100% rule. And almost, like literally, 99% of the tax code. Okay, so... If I'm an S corporation, partnership, we don't wanna get into those details probably, but if I'm a partnership and I die, if you hold real estate, partnerships are usually preferred because if I die, my kids get a step up in basis. And in an S corporation, it's a lot harder to get that step up in basis. They have to get evaluation and it's, it's a lot harder if you have real estate. So um, you'll see a lot of people in real estate are in partnerships. It's the most common. If you're an active operating business, S corporations are the most common. Now, one thing I'm gonna hit on is investing in pass-through entities with your pass-through entity, okay? So I own a partnership with my husband, and my husband's 99% owner, and I'm a 1% owner, okay? He's more, he does more than 50% of his time in real estate, and he also, um, you know, material participation, right? But then we take that and we invest in something that's completely passive. Completely passive. It's a multi-property, multi-unit property, let's call it 30 units in Clemson. Okay? And we own only like, I don't know, 5%, 2%, whatever. Whatever I can afford, right? 2%, 150,000. Okay? Is that going to be passive for my husband? Or is it going to be active, non-passive? We'll call it non-passive, passive. So you're saying non-passive. You're saying passive. Sure. Yeah. I like you're it. doing it with a second entity? 
I own the entity, my husband owns the entity, and we have, we have, we, that entity owns another partnership. It's an investment. It's passive. But when I get taxed on it, how do I get taxed on it? The question I've got is that second entity, is that the one that's doing the investing? Or is that another entity that you made to invest for you? Is the question. So I, I am, my husband is non-passive. He is actively operating, doing real estate, and I'm passive. We invest in a passive, in that partnership, we invest in another partnership, and we own 2%, and that income or loss comes to us. Is that income or loss passive to me and my husband, or is it non-passive? It's passive. It's passive. It's non-passive to my husband. It's non-passive to my husband. It's passive to me. Because of where the money is coming Because of where money's coming from. So, if I own an entity, and I want to get my passive activity losses, I really want my passive activity losses. I do not want them to be passive. I want them. I want them to be non-passive. Then I am going to say, husband, we are not investing in that partnership as individuals. We are investing in that partnership as our partnership. Because when that passive activity comes through, because it is passive, and you will get a K-1 that says passive, the IRS tells them that that CPA is required to tell the IRS this person is passive. Okay, there's multiple lines on the tax return that tell the IRS that this person, this partner is passive. Okay, but it comes through to a, an, an uh, investment. In our case, it's not investment. It's a, an operating LLC where my husband is 99% owner and he is a non-passive material participating partner. So his 99% of that 2% is going to be fully deductible. The law says, okay. So this is a strategy if you want to recognize those losses, that is one way to do it, okay? But you gotta know what you're doing to do it because otherwise it can get really ugly. Yeah, okay. You like that? I love that I taught you something. Can I say that I love that? Oh. <laughs> it makes me so happy because you're like, you've been doing this a long time. Okay, so that's something that is, um, that's one of the tricks that we do when we have guys who have a lot of money and they are actively operating a business and then they want to recognize passive activity losses, we make sure that they invest in an entity. Um, most of our guys, we do actually, we have the operating business as an S-corp and they invest in a passive activity um, that's gonna, we know is gonna be a loss, right? Multifamily are almost the first few years are almost all losses. So we know the first five years are gonna be losses and we say, hey, let's funnel through this S-corp and let's offset those, that income, okay? So that's the way you can do that and it doesn't get held up. Yeah. Is this like a step down LLC structure or is that what it's called? Step down or uh, step? So not really because you're investing. This idea is you're investing in a completely different entity that you have nothing to do with. The step down is typically you own. This is like, when you give me money, right? So you're, yes. you're giving money directly from one LLC. So my LLC another. Is, is going to a completely different LLC or partnership that I have no, I only own 1% or 2%. Okay. Like it's a, it's one of those, like, it's not a public partnership, but it's one of those things where like, you got to, see when you get on the deal, you got to know people, right? Like, Hey, we got a deal. It's a $10 million deal. And it's, you know, we need, we're looking for at least 20 investors. It's a partnership, you know, to buy in your minimum is 150,000, 150, you're going to own X, right? Because we got the big whale over here that's going to own 50%. And he's right. giving us 5 million. That's that kind of deal. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so that's that's what that is. So it's not step down. Um, step down is typically when you talk about that strategy, that is you own and you own and you own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. 
So, um, let's see here. Okay. When you said partnerships is the most common because the kids step up in basis, the partnership, were you talking about you and your wife together in an LLC as a part as a partnership? Yeah, you are in a partnership. Okay. And then you die. <clears throat> we don't recommend that. Don't do it. Try okay. not to do that. Zero yeah. okay. stars. Um, so just for today, try not to do You that. die, you have it in the partnership agreement that your wife doesn't inherit that partnership interest because why would you do that? Right? She's my wife. <laughs> so, and so instead of your wife inheriting it, your kids inherit it. Okay. And when that happens, your CPA will do a, a 743B election, which basically serves 754 election, depending on, and I'm going to step up my basis. So that property gets a fair market value property at that time. They continue to do the depreciation that you and your wife had, and then they get a step up in basis, and then they start depreciating that. So they get a higher basis. So that's a good thing. Yes. Yes, because it's free money. It's treated as free money. Good. That's good. I got you. So if I get a step up in basis for somebody dying, which I don't think any of us ever want our people to leave, but if they do leave, let's at least leave them something good, right? So let's get a step up in basis. And if I get a step up in basis, then, and like if I own the property myself in my name, and I die, and I leave it to my husband, well, he gets a step up in basis 100%. Like whatever my basis was, he automatically becomes the owner with a new basis, whatever the fair market value is that day. And please get appraisals. God, Lord, help. Please get appraisals. Okay? How often? Only when you die. Only when you die. Okay. <laughs> right <Yeah>. before. <laughs> I mean, you have to get appraisals other times. I'll put that in my trust. Yeah. yeah. When you die, your people need to go get appraisals on all your property. Okay. Like certified appraisals. Because the IRS is going to want to use tax value. And almost always, not Lexington County, though. Lexington County is really good. They're ridiculous sometimes. But Newberry County, for example. I'm using Newberry County. Newberry County, the values are always lower than what the fair market value is, right? Calhoun County, holy heck. Calhoun County, like it's ridiculous. Calhoun County is a lot less. Four ladies living together is still considered a brothel in Calhoun County. Yeah, so so Calhoun County is another one. If you have property in Calhoun County and they use the tax value, you will absolutely pay more tax than you should when you sell that property. So get an appraisal if someone dies and you inherit it. Okay, so let's see here. Now, we're gonna talk about Passive versus non-passive for tax purposes, qualified business income deduction versus net, net investment income tax. Okay, so who here believes that everything, they want everything to be passive? Raise your hand if you want everything to be passive. It's never 100%. <laughs> it's never 100%. So I get guys that call me up and they say, Aaron, we want everything to be passive. And I'm like, why? Maybe I can get that in like 2007. But why? And remember, when I'm talking about this, generally speaking, a lot of the people I work with do make more than 150000 and, and and quite a bit of them make more than 250000 So I, I do that with this that, that, that angle, okay? okay? So if I'm sitting there and I'm talking to them, like, I want everything to be passive. I'm like, you make $700,000 a year. Why do you want everything to be passive? Because guess what? If it's passive at $250,000, every dollar of $250,000, if you're married filing jointly, you pay an extra 3.8% tax on it. Thank you, Net Investment Income Tax and the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. Okay, so that came into being in 2008 or nine. So that's why I said, let's go back to 2007 for that, right? The other thing is in 2017, a law was passed called the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Anybody ever heard of that? You have, wow, I'm impressed. 
Okay, so that was passed by the Trump administration and that brought into being on January 1st of 2018, the Qualified Business Income Deduction. Every small business owner in America should be praising the good Lord for that deduction, okay? I don't care what your politics are. If you're a small business owner, that is good for you, okay? So if I'm passive, not always, but if I'm passive, not always, but if I'm passive, then typically qualified business income deduction does not apply and the net investment income tax does. The qualified business income deduction says of my net income, I don't pay 20% at the federal level. So if I have a $100,000 profit in my business, I don't pay taxes on $20,000. That's a nice gift, yeah? So if I make $400,000 and I'm non-passive, qualified business income deduction says I don't pay tax on $80,000. Do y'all want to do the math for me? No. Okay, I'll help you. We're going to do this. All right, let's say I make a million dollars in my business. That means I don't pay tax on $200,000. At that point, that law just saved me $74,000. Okay? And I'm not paying the 3.8% on it because I'm non-passive. Okay? So this whole mantra, which I have seen many times, I've gotten so many clips, TikTok, YouTube, uh, Instagram. I don't have any social media, so when I say this, I have to like watch the clip and you know hit the like whatever, I'm not going to log in thing. I cannot tell you any clips I've gotten from clients who say, I want to make everything passive because this guy here on the YouTube says I should. Okay? So when my clients call me and say they want to do everything, the guy on YouTube says, I'm like, that was a great idea in 2007. He's like 16 years late to the party. Okay? Okay? So let's just think about that, all right? So if I have a choice today under the current tax law, which sunsets in 2025, so 23, 24, 25, if I have a choice today, do I want to be passive? Do I want to be non-passive? If I'm making money, if I'm making money, do I want to be passive or non-passive? Not passive. Not passive. It's a, it's a numbers game. It's a no-brainer, right? Right. I'm all about numbers. And really, I said this earlier to someone. I said, numbers don't lie and facts don't, I mean, feelings don't matter, okay? <laughs> feelings don't matter when you talk about taxes because guess what? The IRS doesn't care how you feel. South Carolina Department of Revenue doesn't care how you feel. Don't care. They say, hey, you know what? Thanks for, thanks for playing. We don't like the rules you applied, so we're going to change it. And you can appeal and you can take it to tax court, but with real estate, the IRS wins a lot because people think they can do a lot of stuff. I mean, and real estate, by the way, Congress, the real estate lobby is amazing. The real estate lobby is amazing. There's so many things the real estate lobby has done, which is so good for the real estate investor, right? So they have this law right now that if I was passed in 2016, if I'm gonna do repairs, like I'm gonna paint my building, I'm gonna paint, the inside of my rental property. I'm gonna do commercial because it's easier. The numbers will make more sense. So I'm gonna paint my outside of my building and I've decided if you paint, by the way, and it's not repairs and maintenance, how long do you have to depreciate it? 39 years, okay? So I'm gonna paint it, but now I'm, gonna, I'm going to state in a document that goes in my office, it says, we will paint this building again in less than 10 years. Well, in 2016, if I made that statement, now I can deduct that painting. I do not have to depreciate that over 39 years, okay? So the real estate lobby is active, and they're good, and they do a lot of good things. 
No, I get to take the expense and the year I do it. Okay. Now, there is also a caveat. My repairs cannot be more than 2% of the basis, you know, the unadjusted basis of my property. Um, and so you got to kind of watch that. But for also, the most part, it, you're, if you're doing it, it's, you're going to be below the 2%. The painting rule, you said commercial, but does it also work if you have houses or condos? Yeah, it does. Condos? Yeah, I was using that as an example because commercial usually paints more often. Well, they, they really houses do, do too, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Houses, I mean, I'll say this not to be mean, not to be mean to anybody who owns um, rental properties, but I can tell you driving around that a lot of the rental properties that I see do not get painted every 10 years. <laughs> On the outside. What about the inside? Inside, the inside, inside counts. counts. Yeah, same, same rule. Oh, yeah, yeah same. painting. It's any kind of repairs. And now, okay, also passed in 2016, if I have a hole in my roof, take a picture, please. If I have a hole in my roof, I can expense the, re the replacing my roof. If I don't have a hole in my roof and I replace my roof, I'm going to appreciate that roof for 27.5 years. If, I, if it's residential rental, ah, okay. okay. I got you. So I, I want the tree. If I, if it's about time for me to replace my roof, I am not calling the tree man. I want that tree to fall on my roof. Huh? Yeah, call the call the hunter. Hey, come shoot my limb out. Put a hole. I just need a hole in the roof right here so I can take a picture. Call the roofer. Okay, so. Net investment income tax is 3.8%, so that's anything, if you have make more than $250,000 a year, that's anything that's passive. Rental real estate is one of those things. Again, we talked about that earlier. Uh, dividend income, capital gain income, all that stuff falls under that net investment income tax. It is a punitive tax, um, but it is what it is. So, okay, let's see here. Okay, those are all the things I had listed, yes? Yeah, I, I, I'm just saying, those are all the things I listed that I thought were like kind of fun and interesting and, and helpful. Um, if there's some other topic you want to talk about, these are the things that, and, and Shayla, did I say anything on the phone that I didn't cover? No, that was everything. Okay, that's what I thought. I had written, written it down, but then I couldn't find my notes, and I was like, dang it, where are my notes? <laughs> so I rewrote it right before I came, so yeah. All right, so I wanna, one of my goals is to acquire more properties with owner finance. Uh -huh. So, say this gentleman and his wife want to go to Aruba and they have like 30, 40 properties and they don't want to deal with tenants anymore. Mm -hmm. And maybe say, like, or say all their properties are paid for in cash. Mm -hmm. um, and so, if they decide to sell them, they're going to take a big capital gains uh, mm -hmm. hit. Mm -hmm. What would be their tax advantage to owner finance to me instead of selling it on the open market? Installment sell. Yeah. yeah, installment sell. Right. So, an installment sell, so the, there's Okay, talk about depreciation well, recapture. I want to sell it to the right. Okay, so, let's, so is this going to, this is going to be somebody who's been depreciating their property, right? What's that? This will be someone you're buying from who has been depreciating their yes. property. Okay, yes. so depreciation recapture is a bitch. Did I say that earlier? Right. Okay, yes. I'm going to reiterate that right I feel like you now. Have Appreciation recapture is a bitch. Do you know how you know many clients I've gotten from people who got tax notices because they failed to capture, to recapture their depreciation? I can't tell you how many clients have walked in. My CPA, I got this notice that says I owe $25,000. And I look and I'm like, yeah, you do. And he's like, oh my gosh, right? That's a bad feeling. So, um, but if you don't take depreciation recapture, guess what? Yeah, you gotta recapture it. So, um, to answer your question, the, the benefit is going to be the installment sell. So they get a little bit of income, the, the capital gain income and the interest income. Interest income, again, will be ordinary capital gain, will be capital gain. So they'll break it out, right? Because you're going to do a note, right? And you're going to give them a great interest rate. You want to sell that. I mean, they're going to give me a great interest rate. 
All right, well, I see what you mean. No, if you're, not, you're gonna say, in the bank, you're only gonna get 1%, but with me, you're gonna get seven. Right, right, right. Never mind, I thought you meant, never mind, but yeah, yeah. You're still, I'm selling it for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna give you a great interest rate. You're gonna get to recognize the income over time. It's gonna be performing. I'm gonna perform, because you know it performs as your properties. Here you go, you're gonna have capital gains every year because your profit percentage, you only pay tax on your profit percentage in the, on the installment itself. And, um, but the, the, the one that you're gonna, their CPA is gonna, the hurdle that you're gonna hit is that in year one, when they sell, they have to pay uh, recapture tax the year of the sale. Oh, so so that recapture can be really ugly. So, so your down payment. That doesn't get spread out, you're saying? No, it does not. The re depreciation recapture gets recaptured in year one of the installment sale. So if you are gonna do that, then you need to really make sure that your down payment is enough to cover the taxes on that. Hmm. Yeah. So say, let's just make an example. Let's say it's worth $2 yeah. million, dollars, all the properties combined, okay. and they're all fully depreciated. Oh. Right, let's just say, so we're gonna, you know, we're gonna say they're halfway, I don't know. Okay, so let's say they bought them for a million, and they're gonna sell them for two million, and they're fully depreciated. Okay. Okay, so that million dollars, they're gonna pay about an average of 23% on that million dollars. So $230,000 is their tax in year one. Now everything, everything beyond that, right? Everything after that, that other million every year is gonna be taxed at, depending on their income, 15 to 20% at the federal level. So that's not an easy, easy sale for me though. Well, it depends. It depends. Remember earlier I said there's no 100%? Depends. If they have a bunch of properties they brought in the last three years, eh. Yeah. Right? But if they have a bunch of properties they've been holding for a long time, that installment sale will be an ugly experience for them. I always thought, I would always heard, you know, this is like yeah. going back to that TikTok. YouTube, sort of yeah. yeah. I, always, I always heard that they could uh, spread out their capital gains over the sale. Absolutely, they can. They can. Capital Absolutely. Gains. Yeah. Capital gains part, they can. Uh, but, the, but not at Okay, so remember, I have a cost basis of 300000 I have a cost basis of three hundred thousand. I've depreciated down to two hundred thousand. Yeah. My depreciation recapture is one hundred thousand. Yeah. So I'm selling this property to you for four hundred thousand. I have a hundred thousand of depreciation recapture and a hundred thousand of capital gain. Oh, that capital gain, I can spread it out as long as you want to. Oh, okay. If you want to spread it over thirty years, and I say yes to you, we can do that. Okay. But that hundred thousand of recapture, mm-mm. Oh, okay. That's happening in year one. Oh, okay. YouTube's great. <laughs> they give a lot of great ideas. But in practice, they don't always feel good. What happens if, say, the couple's older, okay. they do have 30 properties. Okay. I get them to uh, sell me their portfolio, but I only make interest-only payments to them. Uh-huh. And then this goes on for 30 years, and they only live for 20, and then their kids inherit the property. Mm -hmm. I mean, they inherit the... The note. The note. The note. Yeah. Well, I mean... <laughs> Couple that wants to retire for the rest of their life because they're not paying capital gains on it, correct? No, they would not pay capital it's gains on it. It's interest-only payments. Yeah, but you, but the kids would, I guess, get screwed, right? But I mean, yeah, the, the, the note, the installment sale, right. then becomes the, the owner, the estate owns the installment sale. Right. Yeah. So then that, when that happens, those capital gains will be paid by the kids. Okay. So when you're trying to determine what that down payment needs to be. Mm -hmm. For the depreciation recapture tax, yep. Is it okay? I can find out what the guy paid for the property ten years ago or whenever mm -hmm. he first bought it. Find out what he paid for it. If it was a hundred thousand dollars, is it twenty-three yep. percent of that? Is it like so, a so I was doing like 
it's a we have a graduated income tax, so that's why I was getting like I was kind of guesstimating the twenty three percent because a portion of that's going to be at a higher rate. So like if their income, roughly, yeah. so let's say that you're buying a house for two hundred thousand dollars and you want to do owner financing, it's it, two million is going to be a lot more punitive, if, especially if uh, one million of us fully depreciated. Well, I've got one right now that's about two hundred thousand. Okay, two hundred thousand. That's that's, that's, a, good, that's a great yeah. example. Okay, so if I got two hundred thousand, let's say he bought it for one hundred and fifty five years ago. Is that fair? Is that a good estimate? Sure. Okay. So he's appreciated it for five years, and if it's a residential owner, it's 27.5 years. So at 150, 27.5 years, it's a few thousand dollars per year. Okay? So if I, if I want to figure it out, then I know my down payment needs to be, and I'm just going to use the highest tax rate, which is 37%. Okay? So I'm going to say, which by the way is 25%, just so you know, the, the recapture is technically 25%, like by statute. So when I say 23%, I'm talking about their whole income was going to, they're going to pay tax on that. So 25% is the recapture statute. So if I'm going to pay it, I'm going to pay 25%. So I'm going to go in and I'm going to say, plus state, by the way, that's only federal. Federal is 25. State's going to be 6.5. So I'm going to have to pay 31.5. So if it's in South Carolina. So I'm going to go in and I'm going to say, okay, he depreciated. It's been $3,000 a year. It's been five years. That's $15,000. He's going to have to pay that when I sell. So I need to pay him at least 31.5% of $15,000 minimum on my down payment. 31.5% of $150,000. Where'd you get the 15? Okay. I did 150 divided by 27.5. And I did it in my head. I don't know. Oh, I see. Okay. And I'm saying it's $3,000 $3, a year. I mean, it's not exactly, but $3,000 a year. $3,000 a year for five years is $15,000. And that's the recapture. So my recapture is going to be 25% federal. It's 31.5%, so I'm going to pay a third. So I'm going to pay $5,000 down payment minimum. I see what you're doing. I just need to call you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I have a spreadsheet for that. <laughs> cool. I have, a I have a spreadsheet for a lot of things. but And I have a thing on my desk that says I have a spreadsheet for that, and I really do have a spreadsheet for that. <laughs> yes. Um, can you explain how you um, extend capital this capital gain after a sale? Yes. So it's an installment sale. So what happens is, is I go in and I say, and I'm going to use his example. I'm going to buy your house from you for $200,000. I'm going to give you $15,000 down because I'm, you know, wanting to be, I mean, they're going to only finance, what, 93.5% at that point, right? So that's not bad. Um, it's better than the bank. And you're going to say, and they're going to say, okay. And so then you have, they, you're, they're giving you a note for $185,000. You agree with that? Yep. Okay. So now that note I'm going to pay interest on. And I'm going to amortize that over whatever period they'll let me. Most of these loans, by the way, owner financing, in our office, we don't have any that are more than five years. So when you're talking about owner financing, the majority of them are five years with a balloon. Okay? The majority. Five year amortization? 20-year amortization or 25-year amortization with a five-year balloon. Just like the yeah. bank. Yeah. Just like a bank. Because a lot of the owner financing people are fine with it, but they don't really want to be a, they don't want to be a financier or a lender for the rest of their life. Right? So they're going to say, okay, we'll do that, 185000 7% for five, you know, 20-year AM or 20-year AM is the most common, but 20 or 25-year AM, five-year blind. So you're going to make that payment. When you make that payment, that payment's broken down between a interest and a principal. Agree? Yep. So my principal portion is going to be the capital gain calculation. So in year one, my capital gain is going to be kind of small, but my interest is going to be high, right? But my capital gain is going to be based on, and I'm going to use his example, 150. I depreciated 15. So my basis is now 135. My gain is 200 minus 135, right? So I have a $65,000 gain. Well, that $65,000 is going to be spread over 
the five years, and the first year I'm going to pay a very small portion on that 65000 Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. But the seller has to worry about all their own taxes. Yeah. The buyer, me, doesn't have to worry about the seller's taxes. Only if it becomes a problem for you. Only if you need help to know it so that yeah, you can sell you, it to the if guy. You wanna, if you want to do owner financing, it can matter. I mean, if you're the buyer, the reason it matters is because, like, we had a guy who sold a property in New York State in 2021. He had owned the business since 2005. It had real estate and property, I mean, uh, personal property. When he sold the business on an installment sale, he owed more taxes on the recapture than he got as a down payment. So he was pissed, right? That's when it matters. What did he do? What did he do? Well, whenever the CPA told him what was going to happen, they had not closed yet. Oh, he pulled out. Okay, no, he didn't pull out. He went back and he said, I have taken this deal to my CPA, and yeah. we said to him, you are not going to be able to pay your taxes with your down payment. And he was like, what? Like, I can't do that. So he went back and renegotiated, and, it's, and they said, well, how much is your tax, and whatever, whatever. And then it became, it became a problem for the buyer because the buyer had to come up with more cash. So that's when it matters. I always just tell people, talk to your CPA. I'm just the guy buy this buy Yeah. I bought a bunch of them this way, and yeah. I learned this trick from a buyer. Right. They were selling their whole portfolio. Yep. They had sold some for cash. They had uh, 1031 some. Yep. And then they they were they took my seller finance offer, which was so the 1031s on the recapture on the 1031s is going to be brutal, especially if you've 1031 a few times. They they basically are moving to the beach again. What did they do on their life? So, no, it's totally that. The only time it matters to the buyer is whenever the the buyer, whenever the seller says, "I can't pay my taxes." Like I'm cool doing this for you, but I can't pay my taxes, and then it becomes a thing. That's my time. I don't know. I got a house and it's appreciated like crazy since then, so I'm totally stoked about that one. <laughs> okay. Do you yes. ever recommend, uh, so, since you're talking a lot about depreciation, yeah. do you ever recommend not depreciating your house? My Ooh, thing. I am yeah. so glad you asked that question. I love that question. That's an excellent one. We have some CPAs who have de deployed that uh, strategy, and you know what? It really sucks. <laughs> really, really bad. So it's a bitch either way. <laughs> I would say not appreciating is a bigger bitch. You know what the uh -huh. IRS says? Okay. The IRS statute says allowed or allowable. If you didn't take it, too bad for you. Uh -huh. when, you when you calculate the sale of that house, we treat it as if you did depreciate oh, it. Oh. If you didn't take it in the year that you were allowed to depreciate it, it's allowed or allowable. And the IRS says, if you didn't take it and you were allowed to, too bad. You have to calculate it as if you did. So we had a guy who had a house for eight years. He rented it for eight years. He called me up. He'd done his own taxes for eight years. He said, will you help me do this? And I said, sure. So we did it. And I called him up and I said, did you depreciate this house? Because on your schedule, I don't see where you depreciated it. No, 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 I didn't want to depreciate it. I heard how bad depreciation is and how it hurts when you sell. So yeah, it's going to hurt real bad, honey. <laughs> you know a lot. So okay, more or less just take that basis drop it down regardless if you take it or not. They treat it as if you depreciated it even if you, it's called allowed or allowable. Oh, so if you don't depreciate, it doesn't matter. You just lose it. So take it. Take it. Allowed or allowable is a doctrine that is extremely painful. Very painful. 
And this gentleman decided to amend his tax return for three years. All that was open, we amended. But for the five years, he just lost it. So it's very painful. Do not do that. Take your depreciation. Yes. What if you sell a business that owns an entity? I think or owns property. I think you mentioned that a minute ago. If I sell a business that yeah, if I sell a business, I did, I, I did. But my guy in New York State did that. No, he lives in South Carolina. Now. I, I try not to do New York State tax returns. <laughs> California, Oregon, Whew, Oregon. I hate Oregon. Can I tell you that? <laughs> yes. Don't be offended, please. You're here, so I, I presume you're not going to be offended. Oregon taxes are the most onerous. I don't know if Massachusetts is worse or Oregon, but Oregon is horrible. And every year they become worse. I really think Oregon's the worst state in the union right now. With taxes. Do not live in Oregon. Do not invest in Oregon. Do not do anything in Oregon. Stay as far away from Oregon as you can stay. Uh, California is no good either. Stay away from California, and don't go to New York either, because New York, mm, New York. Um, but Oregon's the worst. So, there you go. We filed tax returns in like 30-something states. You what now? So how do you feel about Oregon? I know, I know. I, I oftentimes leave people confused. Is that an absolute? It's an absolute. Yeah, I have like 30 clients in Oregon. I deal with Oregon almost every day. I like really, I'm going to despise them. Okay, so when I sell a business that owns property, what happens is, um, which I don't recommend, by the way. I don't recommend that you have your real estate inside the operating. So if I have an S corporation, I don't want my real estate inside that S corporation, right? Like we had a client who just sold, and unfortunately, before they came to me, their CPA had put their real estate inside the S corporation. So when they sold, um, they the S corp or the house? No, th theirs is a business. Like the businesses that I typically work with own commercial real estate in one way, shape, or form. And in this particular case, they closed the day before Thanksgiving and Tuesday before Thanksgiving, actually. And they, when they sold, most people want, they don't want to buy the real estate and the business. They want to buy the real estate and the business. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? They don't want to buy it as one. Or one or the other. <laughs> yeah, or they want to buy one or the other. So in this particular case, um, what happens is, is that you do have to allocate by statute, you have to allocate between the personal property that you're purchasing and the real estate that you're purchasing. So if you have it all together, they have to, like most buyers are gonna come in, they're gonna say, we're buying your real estate for two million. We're buying your business for three million, right? They're not gonna buy it all as one because then it can get really, really hairy, really hairy, really fast. Because when you buy a business, you're gonna buy Goodwill almost guaranteed, hmm. especially a small business. Because their basis and their assets is gonna be very low. So like if I sell a business, I own a business, and I'm gonna just use an example of an HVAC company. So I'm an HVAC company, I own a bunch of trucks, which pretty much all I own, right? HVAC companies not anything but trucks. Or I'm a dumpster company, I own trucks and dumpsters, either one. But I've depreciated them, right? I'm depreciating my dumpsters, right? And I'm depreciating them as quickly as I can because why do I wanna pay tax when I don't have to, right? So then somebody comes along and they say, I want to buy your business and I want to buy your commercial real estate because I'm going to buy it all. But I'm going to buy two separate transactions. I'm going to buy your business and I'm going to buy your real estate. The real estate is going to be a fair market, typically is a fair market value transaction. They kind of get appraisals, they go around, whatever. And then they go to the business and they buy the business for whatever they decided their total purchase price was going to be, typically depending on cash flows of the business, right? So if I'm buying, if I am the buyer, and I'm buying a business that has real estate and an operating business, I'm definitely buying my real estate separate. And if I really was smart, I would probably buy my real estate below fair market value. 
Okay? Yeah. Because I don't about, want that appreciation every 39 years. No, 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 no. That's only when you die. Because you want to step up in basis. We want appraisals when you go up. Yeah. We don't want appraisals when you go down. Okay, so I'm gonna go to him and I'm gonna say, okay, I see your business, your total cash flows, whatever. I think I can buy your business for three million dollars. Okay? Three million dollars, I'm gonna say, oh, your real estate, well, the tax value is six hundred thousand. Fair market value might be a million. That tax value looks really good. I'm gonna buy your business. I'm gonna buy your property for six hundred thousand, but I'm gonna buy your business for two point four million. Okay. Do you like that as a seller, or do you like that as a buyer? Who likes it more? The buyer does. Because when I buy the business for two point four million, almost guaranteed his assets are fully depreciated, which he doesn't love because he has to recapture all that ordinary income. Not fun, right? But the capital gain part. Goodwill on mine is depreciated or amortized over 15 years versus 39 years. So as the buyer, I like it. As a seller, except for my ordinary income recapture, I like it, right? And I really don't care, to be honest with you, because at the end of the day, it's all capital gain. Like beyond my recapture, it's all capital gain, so it doesn't matter. But the buyer, it matters. So that's what I would do if I were the buyer. I'd allocate it out and do as low as I could on the real estate side. And by the way, that also determines your personal, I mean, your real estate property tax. So let's keep it as low as we can, right? Right. That's what I was saying. Is I would just real estate property taxes, real estate property taxes in South Carolina are lower than the national average. However, for businesses, they are not really, they don't feel that way anyway. Yeah, rental properties. Uh, yeah, 6%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And your business personal property, dumpsters and that kind of thing are 10.5%. Yeah, they suck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how the hell my truck that I bought brand new last year only went down seventeen dollars and twenty five cents. You know wanna know how? Is it Lexington County or is it Richland County? It's Richland County. Oh, I don't know Richland County. Richland County probably raised taxes, but Lexington County raised taxes. Richland Lexington County raised taxes substantially. Well fifty five percent goes to a school. I ain't got a kid in school. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to South Carolina Law. That's called Act 388. If you can get um, all of you people who are in real estate, who is not your personal residence, you'll love this comment or this little tidbit. You might love it, you might hate it, I don't know. So Act 388 was passed, I don't know, 2008, I think. Basically, Act 388 says that all non-residential rental, uh, I mean, yeah, non-residential, like not my principal residence, and all commercial property is gonna be treated at 6%. Which means they pay the lion's share of the taxes in the state of South Carolina, which goes to the schools. And all the residentials pay 4%. And if you're over 65 and it's your principal residence, then you get the homestead exemption. Okay? So if y'all have noticed, South Carolina has become a little bit of a retirement state. I don't know if y'all noticed this or not, but it's, it's happening. It's true. That's really, really bad if you, want to get, if you want to get down to the nuts and bolts of it. Because a kid in Lexington District 5 costs $13,000 a year to educate. How much does that house pay that they're staying in? I got, I got an example for you actually, okay? Yeah. I have a friend, they moved here from Idaho. They live on the lake. They bought their house for $600,000. They pay about $4,000 a year taxes. They have five kids in the school district. Five times 13 is what? $65,000 a year that we as taxpayers are paying to educate their kids because that's what it costs in District 5. That's District 5's published numbers. 13000 and they're paying 4000 They do not own a business. They do not own a property. They pay $4,000 a year to educate their kids. Wow. So who's paying for that? 
Every single person that owns a rental property and every single person that owns a business. But not your own house, right? Not your own house. Your own house is 4%. Yeah. So if you want to change, if you want to change the landscape, you've got to talk to your state representatives, which, good luck. But 